Well, good morning, Mission View. Welcome. Did everyone have a good Thanksgiving this week? Is anyone still experiencing the, the phenomenon of a, of a food coma? Um, it's a pleasure and a joy to be gathered together again with you this morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the members here at Mission View. And if you're new here, um, if it's your first time visiting with us or if you've been coming for just a few weeks, uh, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Um, I can't think of a more exciting time of year or season to be gathered together as the church family. Uh, Thanksgiving is often a time of reflection, of looking back, and I think that we can all agree that it has been quite a year. If you even just check in on the, the news or look at the headlines once a month or so, you know that it has been a, a tumultuous and a heavy year around the world. And uh, I would argue that we could use a little love, a little joy, a little cheer right about now, and preferably not the manufactured type that the holiday season tends to conjure up, right? That's really just meant to help us open our wallets. Uh, we're finishing our series in 1 John today, and we're finishing not because we've made it all the way through 1 John, um, but because starting next week, we are in the Advent season, we are celebrating the coming of our Savior into this world. And I'm not trying to get ahead of myself. I'm extremely excited for the passage we have to walk through today. Uh, but I can't help but promote what's coming as it's, it's my absolute favorite time and season of the year. And so if you're in need of a little uh, good news in your life, I encourage you to make every effort to be here in the coming weeks. Uh, if, if you don't have a church home or a church family, I encourage you and welcome you to join us. Matt has a, a great series planned for us, and I'm excited to walk through that together as the body. Uh, like I said, though, today we're going to be camped out in 1 John chapter 4, finishing our series, The Father's Heart. And our chapter today is packed. It's, it's a long chapter. We're actually going to break it up into three different sections and the main theme that John is going to be speaking to in our passage today is the theme of love, the topic of love. And so before we dive in um, and before we uh, look at God's word, I want us to consider two questions this morning. First, I want us to ask ourselves, who is our God? Who is your God? And second, how does your God love. We all walk in here with preconceived notions about this word love, right? Depending on uh, our upbringing, depending on our parents and their relationship with each other or maybe lack thereof, depending largely on the uh, experiences throughout your life and the relationships that have taken part in your life, all of these things in subtle and not so subtle ways define love for us and form notions about how it looks. And so again, I ask, as we approach God's word today, who is your God and how does your God love? Let's pray together and then we'll dive into God's word. Uh, God, we just thank you for the ability to gather together again as the body, as your church, and to come and to worship you, Lord. We thank you for bringing us all here this morning, Lord, and we would ask that your spirit um, would be doing the work 
of softening our hearts, of opening our eyes and our minds to your word today, Lord. Um, that, that it wouldn't be my words, Lord, but that it would be your word that is heard today, um, that is remembered today. And may we, as we approach your word, um, hear from it, receive of it, and walk out of here ready to share it, Lord. In the name we pray, amen. We're going to start by reading the first section of our passage today in verse 1. And if you've been here throughout the series, I think you'll hear some echoes of some of the conversations and topics that John has brought up in weeks past. Verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Oh, sorry, I skipped. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. God's word for us today. John is continuing his letter to the church here, a letter that we have said is meant to uh, encourage and affirm the believers in the body. And the first thing that John um, calls us to and reminds us of in our passage today, kind of the header that I'm putting on this section, is that there is truth and there is air. There is truth and there is air. And regarding this, John points out and calls us to a few things. First, he calls us to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits. Test the spirits. That's our first point in this section. And this testing is a responsibility that we are all called to. Our pastor Matt has, has given us a similar instruction as a body, that we are not to come in here on a Sunday morning prepared to take everything that the speaker says at their word, prepared to put our trust in it fully, and then to walk out these doors and do our best to simply repeat it. That's not what we're called to. Right? We are called to weigh that which is said, especially that which is said about God, against his word. His word is our authority. And this word testing here is a call to, to examine, to, to discern, to scrutinize even. I mean, does anyone in here tend to be a bit skeptical. You know, not just talking about spirituality alone, but if you tend to want to see evidence that something is true before you believe it, raise your hand. Okay, I had a friend that had the hiccups and we were trying to tell him that the cure for hiccups is if you take some water and hold it in your mouth and you put yourself as, as much upside down as you can without falling over and then you swallow that water, it gets rid of your hiccups. And we were trying to convince him of this, but he would not do it because he thought we were just trying to make him look silly. And so he would not believe us until he saw someone else do it. He wanted to see evidence. So if that's you, if you tend to be a little bit skeptical, this is your chance to put your skepticism to good use. Okay? 
this testing, this discerning, this scrutinizing. But hear this. The goal of this testing is to deem something worthy or approved after examination. So don't just sit in your skepticism. Do the work of examining, of, of discerning, so that what you're being told may be found to either be in error or to be approved. And then you have to respond to it. But again, this is a responsibility that John is calling all of us too. And so if you didn't raise your hand, you're not off the hook. I think it's helpful that uh, Matt and Adam have already started to explain some of the layers that John is speaking to and kind of getting at uh, in this text. One of the things that John is calling out here is this uh, notion of false prophecy. False prophecy. If you remember in verse one, it said, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. John is speaking to the fact that we have an adversary. We have one who is working against us, who takes the truth of God's word, 99% of the same words and 99% of the same ideas, but he takes it and he twists it to point to anywhere other than to Christ. We have uh, an adversary working against us, and this is true for us today. And this is why John is calling us to test, to discern. Another layer here is the question of Christ coming in the flesh as God. You know, was Christ merely a man, but not actually God? Or was he a spiritual God, but not actually flesh? All of this, Matt reminded us two weeks ago, was being called into question at the time. That's why in verse 2, John says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We have a responsibility to test, to know, to ensure that what we're being told, and therefore what we're believing is sound. As we continue in verse 2 and 3, John gives us a clear litmus test for this testing and this discerning that we are called to. Read again in verse 2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the, the entirety of scripture from beginning to end all tells the same story. It all points to and proclaims Christ as redeemer and savior of the world. Test all teaching against its profession of Christ as God. Matt was in our, our community group a few weeks ago and gave similar uh, advice to us. He said, you know, if you're really trying to evaluate someone's claims, to understand if they're biblical and if they're sound, he said one easy test is to play those claims out and see who they glorify. If those claims played out, glorify God, it is true, but if they, otherwise they will glorify someone or something else. Truth will point to and will glorify God. Continuing in verse 4, John continues and he makes um, a claim within this context of truth and error. The second point that I have is that he claims the spirit of truth is a spirit of power. Listen again in verse 4. It says, little children, 
You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, we see and we hear the affection in John's writing. Little children. And I love when when that affection is followed by a proclamation of power and authority. He who is in you, Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. John's about to, to continue and to call out some of the complexity, some of the confusion that's in the world. But he starts by reminding us and affirming us of the power and the authority of Christ in us. I think it's pretty cool the order that he does that. And then finally, John makes what I'm going to call our third point pretty clear. That truth and awe, or truth and air are at odds. Verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of air. Within all of this, John is ultimately addressing the authority of Scripture and the authority of Christ. If, if Christ was man only, but not God, or if Christ was God only, but not man, that changes everything. And uh, these, these claims were forming all sorts of incorrect and Gnostic views at this time, views that John minces no words in calling out as at odds with truth. Now, I want to call our attention back uh, to a verse that I, I think should be our guide through these topics. I want to look back again at verse 4, the second half. And it says this, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The power and the authority here is that the power and the authority to do this testing that John is calling us to does not hinge on us, but it hinges on Christ. In fact, this responsibility that John is calling us to, we do not in and of ourselves, by ourselves, have the ability to do so. Right? Because before Christ, without Christ, we were all of and from the world. Each and every one of us were in the same camp, but it was Christ who came into the world to seek us out and to offer us salvation. It was Christ who gave us his spirit, and it is Christ's spirit in us that gives this authority and this power to do this work. Do you see the gift in that and the magnificence and that this is a responsibility that John is calling us to. But I hope we can see that it's also a, a beautiful and an encouraging affirmation of God's plan for us and is working in us. We'll continue into the second section, starting in verse 7. And I think you'll see here that John kind of makes this, this switch um, seemingly abruptly, he, he transitions from this conversation about truth and air into this conversation about love. And it says this in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John makes this crazy, this this big, bold claim right in the middle of our text today. And it's the claim that God is love. And before we uh, dive in and unpack that claim, I want to call our attention to the, the complexity and the weight around this word love. I started by calling out the fact that we all walk in here with preconceived notions about this word love. But let's add a, a few layers of complexity to this. So first, we have one word, love. Um, for what the ancient Greek had at least four distinct words for and multiple variations of those words. And so on a linguistic level alone, we are already disadvantaged in our communication today. Now, add to that our human struggles with communication, right? Each one of us, we give and we receive love differently than the person next to us. And how many of you, by show of hands, and if this is you, please raise your hand. I want to talk to you after. Uh, how many of you have had 100% success attempting to show someone love in a specific way, and that love that you were attempting to show was felt and received exactly as you intended? Anyone? I'm reminded of Matt's story where he took up an activity that he hated. I think it was vacuuming and worked to vacuum to show love. And, and the first time he did it, it wasn't even noticed, right? Now let's add one more layer here of, of culture and potential cultural differences. So my wife, her, her parents were missionaries down in the Dominican Republic for several years. And my wife will tell you that when she would go down to the DR after being away for a while, the girls there, they would run up to her and they'd give her a big hug and they would look at her and they would compliment her by saying, que gordita, meaning you're fat or you've gained weight. And this was meant as a compliment, um, one more similar to uh, you look healthy and you have traveled well, uh, kind of meaning you have eaten well, therefore you have money to do so, therefore it must be a good thing. It was a compliment. But of course, that's not how we hear such a compliment. These are uh, silly examples, but you can easily turn up the volume in this conversation, can we not? Get a little deeper and a little more personal into a conversation with someone about this word love, and it may lead to some of the most intimate thoughts about who we are, about how we identify and about how we express ourselves. You know, if you heard that we were talking about the love of God this morning, and you said, what could be better than talking about the love of God? I would say little else. But if you said, what could be easier than talking about the love of God? I would say almost anything. Love is a mere word that we use to define and express who we are on some of the deepest and most personal levels. And this makes sense, right? In Genesis, we're told that in the beginning, God created man and woman in his image. And so it stands to reason that if we are made in the image of God, a God who is love, 
that love would cut to the core of who we are and how we identify. And because love cuts so deep, because when you look below the surface, it, it cuts to who we are on a personal level, it can easily become a very vulnerable conversation. And one that, if we're not careful, can lead to extreme defensiveness. And so with the, the weight of that fully acknowledged and, and the complexity in full view, let's, let's dive into our passage today and look at what John is calling out on this claim. The first thing that we see here is that we are called to love, which is a call to know God. And not only that, but we are called to love by love itself. It's pretty cool. Let's read again in verse 7. It says, Beloved, or another way of saying that is, Those who are loved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows of God. So before we move forward, um, hear this today. You are loved. As you walked in the doors today, and as you sit in your seats now, know that the God of creation, the God who formed you out of dust, who knows you more intimately and more personally than anyone ever will, who knows you more truly than you know yourself, this God loves you. And this is what sets a solid foundation from which we are then able to and called to love. That we would, we would stand secure as one who is loved. We also see that this love comes from, from knowing God. And this knowing is a knowing by experience. We, we have, um, you know love because you have experienced God. And because you have experienced God, you are then driven to love others. See how that progression works. I truly believe that we are a, a room filled with individuals who were all once of and from this world who experienced God. And there's story after story in here of, of uh, us experiencing love. God is love. God is love. Now, God is not love only, and this does not tell us everything about God, but rather because God is love, every aspect of God is characterized and is colored by love. So we know that uh, God is a, he's a God of justice. So we know that the justice of God is loving. He's also righteous and holy. And so therefore his righteousness and his holiness are loving. And we should be really careful here though, because this is where our adversary would take the truth about love and would twist it to point to any direction then towards God. And most successfully, it seems, he points it right back to us. Right? We're easy targets because it cuts so deep to who we are. And our adversary, Satan, would tell us that, that we can better define love, that we can be better authors of it, that we can make better use of love. 
And therefore, God really has no place or need to tell us about love. And so are we being careful? Okay, now it's time to stop being careful. I'm going to stop uh, rubbing against and pushing back on our notions and our issues with this word love. I think we have a few because John turns now to show us how Christ uh, defines and shows us love. And though I, I truly believe we benefit in this life from pushing on, from being aware of the lies our adversary tells us, from pushing against um, the worldly notions about this word and, and pushing against our flesh, I think that's beneficial work, but we can't be so um, busy and caught up doing that that we fail to turn around and to sit in the love that God lavishes on us. There is enough here for this to be the sole focus for us for the rest of eternity. So let's, let's turn and let's focus on that now. In verse 9, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We see here how God defines love. And we see first that his love sacrifices and serves. Again, it says God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In Mark 10, 45, it says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Philippians 2, we read, it's a longer passage, I think it'll be up on the screen. It says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. And skipping down to verse five, it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. God sacrificed his son, sending him here to serve us. His creation, remind you, who had turned against him. This is the love of our God powerful and perfect God, a God who has everything, who needs nothing, and his love sacrifices and serves. Sit in that for a minute. Think about what our world would look like if every world leader and person in authority left their throne each day to come and serve you lunch and to wash your feet. This is our example Continuing in verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Matt dove into and explained this word propitiation a few weeks ago. The idea of Christ 
taking on the wrath and the judgment that we deserve to appease and to reconcile the separation that sin has caused. If you weren't here for that sermon, I encourage you to go back and to listen through it for a more robust definition and explanation. But what I want to call out for us today is this, that God's love is undeserved and unearned. It's undeserved and unearned. In Romans 5, 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, I'd like to share a story this morning uh, of how God showed this to me in my life in one of the biggest uh, ways. Uh, it, was, it was April of 2014, and I was getting ready to propose. And so I had, I had the ring picked out, and I had the, the place of significance decided, and I had a friend that was going to come, and he was going to help set everything up, and then he was going to sneak and take photos of the whole thing. And when I proposed, I told Lynn that I loved her, that I had affection and desire towards her, that I had a, a lifelong commitment in mind, um, and uh, amazingly, she said yes. The problem was that there was an aspect of my life that was uh, living in hiddenness and sin. And this aspect had to do with where I found affirmation. To put it more plainly, um, I wasn't finding my affirmation in Christ alone. I was actually resisting that quite heavily and as a result, I had this unquenchable thirst for affirmation that could not be fulfilled by any human being. And I'll add that this caused an undercurrent in my life, uh, forming the art of manipulation in order to seek out and define this affirmation that I so desperately wanted. And so right around this time, that I proposed, I was given a, a promotion at work and I was given a company phone and I gave my old phone to Lynn. And one evening, while Lynn was exploring her new phone, she stumbled across a handful of, of text and, and message conversations, conversations between myself and a few different women uh, conversations that were uh, completely inappropriate and absolutely overly flirtatious in nature, and all of which had taken place uh, in the months that we were dating and leading up to our proposal. And so as you can imagine, Lynn, freshly engaged, reading these flirtatious conversations and all of a sudden, uh, one of the most affirming proclamations I could make to her now turned to um, deep, deep confusion and deep hurt. Uh, we, were, we were fortunate at that time that we had a, a really close relationship with our, our elders and our pastors. And we had already been meeting with uh, David, one of our elders, and his wife, Karen, for essentially premarital counseling. And so Lynn immediately went to them, took her confusion and her hurt, and David called me up, and we got together. And to try and make a pretty heavy, weighty, and long story uh, as short as possible for this morning, we spent the next 
two and a half months walking through what John has been calling out in this series towards walking in the light, towards um, walking in open uh, repentance and open confession. And during this time, though Lynn and I were not living together, we were separated relationally for well over a month. Um, I was called to open confession, and so I remember sitting in a room on a Sunday morning with Aaron and David, our pastors, and my mom and my dad, and confessing this to them. Uh, I, was, I was leading a small setup and teardown ministry at that time at our church, and I pulled that team aside and just confessed that I had been leading a ministry with, with unconfessed and hidden sin, apologizing for that. And David and I, we, we went through a good old Puritan book, uh, The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, uh, which is as intensive a book as it sounds. And, and uh, we spent this time not as a, a checklist trying to right my wrongs or to, to win, win back, but it was a pursuit of my relationship with Christ to start to live in the light and the freedom that he has called us to. I'll never forget, though, that after two and a half months of this, after um, spending that time focusing on our relationships uh, individually with Christ, for me to deal with my sin and for Lynn to deal with her hurt, after two and a half months, it was time for the conversation where we decide whether or not we're going to continue towards marriage or whether we're calling it off. And of course, the ball's completely in, in Lynn's court. And I'll never forget that conversation because it only took uh, one look in Lynn's eyes during that time for me to see the pain and the destruction that my sin had caused. And Lynn, she looked at me with those eyes and she told me some hard truth that I needed to hear. She told me, that I had hurt her more deeply than anyone had ever hurt her and that she didn't trust me. And it's, it's kind of comical now. It certainly wasn't then. Um, but she told me that she had asked God if she had to marry me and he had told her, no, you don't. Um, but she continued and she said that as she sought the Lord, that he had reminded her that she too is a sinner, and that her sin is no better or worse, um, and it has the same propensity to hurt. And in this next part, I'll, I'll never be able to explain or I never understand. I'll certainly never forget it. But she told me that God had showed her that though she had now seen some of the worst parts of me, that God had reminded her of a picture of what my life can look like when I am finding my affirmation in Christ, when I am living in submission to him. And he challenged her that though she can't trust me, he challenged her to trust him and to trust him in me. And so she told me that day that if I was committing to a life of finding my affirmation in Christ, of living in submission to him, of walking in the light and open confession, not committing to never screwing up or hurting her again. That was extremely important. 
uh, for us to understand, but committing to no longer living in the bondage of hiddenness. And I can tell you today it is bondage. If I was committing to that, then she would commit to marriage with me. Powerful impact in my life. Friends, the love of God is undeserved and unearned. I stand before you today and proclaim with Paul as he proclaimed in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Continuing in our passage in verse 10, it says this. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Closing this section out, here that the love of God is unlike anything that we are capable of on our own. In, uh, in the book of John, chapter 16 and 17, there's this beautiful picture of Christ and he's praying to God the Father. And it's right before he's taken to be crucified. And I want to read a, a, a part of this prayer from John 17. Um, listen to how Christ talks about love. And how he talks about the love of the Father and his love for us. Again, this is Christ praying to God the Father. He said, The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ loved out of the love that he was given by the Father. And out of his love for us, he calls us to love others. Isn't it amazing that he even sets an example for us in how to love out of love? It's pretty cool. As the band comes out this morning, uh, we don't have time to, to really dive into our third section here, but I want to I read through it because uh, I think you'll see here in the, in the final part of our passage today that um, the effects of God's love, that God's love provides assurance and confidence for us as believers, that God's love casts out fear, and that his love calls us to love others. And I encourage you to dive into this later this week and be encouraged by it. Reading again uh, in verse 13, it says this, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. Do you hear how God's love provides assurance and confidence? Continuing in 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you hear how God's love casts out fear? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I have love and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see how the love of God calls us to love others? In the beginning of our time today, I asked you to consider two questions. To consider who is your God and how does your God love? I'd like to end by reading one last verse from the Old Testament. Would you stand with me? I'm going to read a verse from 2 Samuel 22:31, and it says this. It says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him.